Welcome to In Conversation with Avon, a mini-series discussing global issues impacting the beauty industry today. By 2025, there will be over 1 billion women experiencing menopause globally. Yet this universal female experience that challenges both the physical and emotional well-being of half the world's population from anywhere between 2 to 10 years is massively under-discussed, under-researched and under-provided for. So how does the beauty industry bridge this global information gap and start a conversation most women feel embarrassed and awkward to discuss? To help me answer these questions and more, it is my pleasure to introduce this month's panel. Hello to Gina Gura, Head of Future Innovations at Avon. Hello to Dr. Sarah Jarvis, MBE, a UK-based general practitioner and a women's health expert. And hello to Anthony Gonzalez, Head of Skincare Product Development at Avon. In July 2020, Avon published the first of its kind global research paper, Menopause, TLI, Too Little Information. Gina, can you talk us through what were the social drivers propelling the need for Avon to undertake the study? I think there were, you know, some really interesting insights that we discovered about, you know, this really underserved generation. And I think one of the biggest things were, you know, we're living our best lives now. You know, we, we're feeling really confident in our 40s. We're, um, you know, at the top of our careers. We've got our families. We may not, you know, we're, whatever we're doing or however we're choosing to doing it, you know, it, there was a recognition that when women reach their 40s, they feel really confident and empowered. They're not worried about some of the things that were plaguing them when they were younger. Um, and so they're charging at full steam ahead. And suddenly they start to experience some different type of symptoms that cause them to ask questions. And what was really interesting is when we talked to these women, some of them hadn't, they hadn't even been expecting to start experiencing signs of perimenopause. They weren't even aware of the term perimenopause. They only knew about menopause, but they associated it with their grandmothers. Um, and for a lot of women who may even be having children later in life, it felt like a big shock to suddenly realize that they might be experiencing symptoms of per perimenopause. And it, it, and it felt like it was a bit of a you know, how can we get to this stage in our lives with so much information around us and actually not have any information regarding this topic? And do you see that reflected in your patients, Sarah? Oh, very much so. So the Avon report suggested that over four in 10 women across the world were unaware of the perimenopause until they started to have symptoms and nearly half of those didn't expect it when it did happen. So 46% of them, that's very much what I see among my patients. I'll have a woman who'll come in and she'll start talking about, you know, all oh, my periods are irregular. What does that mean? You know, that's not right, is it? Or I'm starting to get hot flushes. And of course, women so completely underestimate the normal length of time of the perimenopause usually last sort of three to five years-ish, often closer, in fact, probably most commonly closer to five years. And if you consider that the average age of menopause is 51, that means it's actually very common to be going through your symptoms, even as a young as 40, because if you go through your menopause anytime from the age of 45, we consider that to be normal. And most women of that age, you know, 40 really is the new 25 these days. And what has been the implications for R&D, Anthony? A lot of what we're working on, especially for you know, the anti-aging skincare, which really we're, we're taking this pro-aging approach to it, 
And when you think about that, what Dr. Jarvis just said about menopause really starting sometimes in the mid 40s, it affects everything we do because that's predominantly when people start to see age signs and oftentimes they are associated with those biological changes that come along with perimenopause and menopause. So in essence, this has almost driven everything we've been doing for the last 20 years or so. I think, you know, more recently, we're starting to put together the puzzle pieces. So what happens to women in menopause biologically, how can we link that to the changes in their skin and really try to address it in a way that's specific to those changes at this you know, really critical point in her life. And how is digital technology aiding or abetting the menopause conversation, Gina? Well, what was really interesting when we were talking to women is that obviously there's countless uh, amount of information that's available on the internet. So obviously when, when you know, our you know, customers, consumers, women were starting to realize that they might be experiencing this, they will go to the internet for, for information. And it's really interesting that, you know, all of them consistently said that it was, it was very sterile. It was very kind of, you know, bare in terms of the depth of information. And I think there was a broad recognition that, you know, not everyone's symptoms are the same. And actually what was really interesting was that a lot of our women felt that the best information they got was talking to their mum or their friends or people who've experienced it. So it felt like despite the fact that we have so much access to information, it really wasn't helping them in terms of what they really needed to know um, to help them through this. And I think, you know, it was sterile, but there's a recognition that this is quite an emotional journey for a, for a lot of people. So having that reflected in the content would have been, you know, really important, I think. And for you, Sarah, how are your patients using digital technology to source information on the menopause? Well, I wasn't at all surprised to hear that the survey from Avon found that in the UK, women are more likely to find out information from the internet than they are from healthcare professionals. So just over half are finding out information from the internet and just under a quarter were going to see a GP or perhaps talking to a pharmacist. None of that surprised me. But I think those are, we've we just heard some really insightful comments there. Gina is absolutely right that the information that's out there tends to be very sort of cut and dried and it's either it's very it's not nuanced it's very pro or it's very anti-hrt it's very pro lifestyle it's very there's nothing you can do about it stay away from it with a barge pole there isn't anything where women can talk about their individual experiences or there's very little and i think that's actually really important because while it is essential that women have access to high quality reliable information because there is so much misinformation out there by the same token given that so many women in this survey said that their families found it overwhelming for them to talk about the menopause they didn't feel able to do it perhaps i think they need somebody else and maybe it's something that you know women are embarrassed talking about especially if they're in the perimenopause, so they're younger and they just find that, you know, admitting to being perimenopausal when you're 40 is just something I can't cope with. And does technology, digital technology, impact the R&D process, Anthony? Oh, absolutely. I think, you know, some of the things that everybody's talking about here where it's the, you know, people tend to go to people they trust for information. So one of the things you're trying to look at when you're developing a product to treat something like um, perimenopausal skin is really what are people's beliefs? Because come in there from a scientific perspective, right? And you said it, Dr. Jarvis, you know, they're either pro-HRT or against it. There's no nuanced area. 
So using that ability to listen in the digital space, it really helped us to design a technology to help these women uh, in a way that they would understand. So the, the chaos that sort of mm -hmm. goes on during perimenopause that really inspired us from a research standpoint, what are the things we can look at to sort of manage this? We don't know what today is gonna bring. And that really then feeds into then peeling back that onion into the science as to why we can address it in a way that, that really is going to help her. I would absolutely agree with everything that Anthony's just said there. And I think it's really important that we recognize that everybody probably knows about hot flushes. Most people know about vaginal dryness, but that's kind of probably about as far as it goes, quite frankly. Mm. Yet your skin is, you know, hugely sensitive to your hormones. Anyone with teenage acne, which is most of us, um, knows all about that. So, you know, the night sweats, the vaginal dryness, they're one thing, but we've got mood changes. We've got itchy skin, palpitations, problems concentrating, headaches, joint pains, changes to your hair, loss of libido. All of those things are very, very closely tied up with the menopause. But again, every woman's experience is different. And the problem is that actually the sort of fluctuating levels of hormone that you get in the perimenopause and around the menopause can often lead to your skin being both dry and sensitive and itchy, but you all mm. at the same time are getting teenage spots because of the ratio of testosterone to estrogen and you're getting wrinkles and sagging because of your loss of collagen. So, you know, it, you're kind of being hit with a triple whammy. And that's something that certainly actually as a GP, I find that when I ask patients about it, they go, oh, well, I didn't want to bother you, doctor. And does the menopause impact the environment, Gina? Well, I think what's so interesting is that when we started to look into this, it was amazing how little there is available in terms of products for, for consumers experiencing this. And I think exactly as Dr. Jarvis and, and Anthony were saying, you know, because there are such you know, impact to skin condition and physical conditions, there really wasn't anything in the market available um, that relates to kind of skincare. Everyone talks about anti-aging, but this feels very specific. You know, there are certain interventions that happen at this point when you start to experience perimenopause that's, that's more specific to just general anti-aging. So there really wasn't anything. And I think one of some of the, you know, really interesting things that we discovered was this kind of dramatic collagen loss as soon as you start the onset of perimenopause. I think it's up to 30% in the first five years. So something very specific targeted to, to that is, you know, incredibly important as well as skin dryness and then the hot flushes and how that impacts, you know, your skin in terms of your skincare dryness, but also your makeup. They're offering, you know, this kind of on the go relief to women um, as they are, you know, going through their day. So they have something that can help them throughout the day. And for your patients, Sarah, is that the same? Yes, very much so. They really love the fact that they're getting different sides of things. They love the fact that they get support from different people. They love the fact that there is recognition and validation of the issues they're having and that, you know, actually having dry skin or having joint pains or just having, you know, problems with your hair and it's changed. I, I personally can tell you for a certain that my hair in particular changed dramatically when I went through the menopause. 
my skin just started getting so much drier. You know, I know, I suspect every woman's had a moment where they wake up, look in the mirror and think, oh my Lord, who's that old crone sitting there or sitting there staring back at me? And, you know, I've had more than my fair share of those now. So and it's so important we take this sort of thing, sort of thing seriously. Mm. And what effects does the environment have on the R&D process, Anthony? Um, it, it really affects everything that we do. So, you know, one of the things it's, you know, I like to think of like this butterfly effect, everything you do has an outreaching effect on the environment. Um, you know, some of the things, even just identifying new technologies, we look for ways to do this in a more environmentally friendly way. And sometimes it's, you know, getting the right botanicals that are hydroponically grown instead of, you know, factory farmed, um, all the way down to the package that the product finally goes into. What is she going to do with it when she's done? Does it go to a landfill? Can it be recycled? Um, so all of it, every sort of thought that we have and anything that we ladders back to what's its effect on the environment. And are governments investing in menopausal conversation, Gina? I think it varies by country. You know, we're starting to see a lot more conversation happening in the UK, which is great. And I think, you know, what was good about the TLI report and obviously being a global company, we wanted to understand the nuances between the different markets. And, um, you know, there are some where it's not acknowledged at all. There is more social stigma. It's not as developed as terms of a conversation. And it's even surprising really now that we're only starting to see it in, in, in our more developed markets. But I think, you know, it is changing, but it's different everywhere. I think the UK is really leading the charge in terms of, you know, taking this head on. We see a lot more articles, conversation, changes happening at a corporate level, which I think is really important. What input would you like to see from government, Sarah? I'd love to see more consistent information. Uh, at the moment, of course, we have HRA, which is the Medicines Healthcare Regulatory Authority, uh, which warns about safety of medications. And again, they tend to have a, a, a very sort of straight down the line, perhaps not more nuanced approach. So, for instance, let's take breast cancer, which is a really good example. And it's something which causes huge concern for women. NICE has produced updated guidance on the menopause and actually NICE, again, I think does very much lead the way internationally. Other countries look to NICE, that's the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence, in terms of its clinical guidelines in particular, because those ones aren't so much focused on cost, they're focused on quality and evidence. So NICE produced guidance in 2014, very much swung away from oh gosh hrt is very dangerous you've got to you've got to be very careful because there were some studies in the early noughties which suggested a high increase in the risk both of breast cancer and to an extent of stroke and heart attack in fact it became rapidly clear that those were using sort of very very old-fashioned forms of um, HRT. They were using them in women who hadn't had HRT for a long time. So the studies themselves were perhaps flawed. And more recent studies using, if you like, more modern forms of estrogen and progestogen suggested that actually things are much safer than they were. However, the problem with NICE is it takes some time for that to be updated. And in fact, in August 2019, we had a new review of a study looking at over 100,000 women. And they, again, even with the more modern versions, did find an increased risk of breast cancer. They estimated that if a woman takes HRT for about five years and she's taking the so-called continuous combined, that the period-free versions 
one in 50 extra women will develop breast cancer. If she's taking the sequential kind where you have periods with the two hormones, one in 70 over five years. And if she's taking estrogen only, which you can only use if you haven't got a womb, then one in 200 women, extra women will get breast cancer. But what they didn't do, I think, is to put that into perspective. Some women's lives are genuinely, completely and utterly ruined. Their lives are ruled by their menopausal symptoms in the worst possible way. And I think until we've got national guidance that's a little bit better at being updated regularly and seeing the nuances, I think it's still going to be difficult for women to have a conversation. And how does government regulation affect the R&D process, Anthony? Oh, there are many, many layers of, of that. I mean, it, it comes down to the, you know, government saying you can't use these ingredients for topically and cosmetics, you know, all the way through sort of the information that the public has access to and, you know, and everything in between. I think, you know, in this particular case for, you know, the perimenopausal woman or woman going through menopause, it really, the best thing you can do is objectively inform, you know, some of the times you'll see something in the news and it'll raise eyebrows and, you know, the news can tend to try to be provocative. I think we can actually, you know, use some of the information we have with some of these government funded studies to put a more objective sort of lens on there to allow people to make decisions for themselves um, rather than sort of, you see this big sensationalized thing and two years later, more comes out, turns out it may not have been true or here's information you may want to consider we never really hear that part. So if we can sort of round that out so everybody can really make objective decisions for themselves, I think that's you know the best role that they can play. And finally, Gina, what could, should the menopause conversation look like in 12 months' time? Oh, the dream would be that, you know, it's if there's no stigma attached anywhere, that it's a really open, free-flowing conversation, that there's no judgment. Um, and that there's, you know, the consistent access to information, um, conversation, product, um, and that we really celebrate this this journey. It's not terrible for everyone. Some some people find it very liberating, but you know, I think just open conversation, um, consistency of information, and uh, we really hope that you know that could be the norm. And I think you know this is why we felt our channel was really important here because it's women to women talking about this and trying to break down those barriers so that this conversation does become more um, prolific. And for you, Sarah, what does the menopause conversation look like in 12 months time? I would love to see women and doctors having a really grown up adult to adult conversation about menopause in 12 months time or indeed any time in the future. I am delighted that long gone are the days where the assumption was that doctor knew best, the doctor would tell you by giving you the benefit of their expertise and their experience, what they knew was best for you. But by the same token, I would hope that women might perhaps understand that actually there are some elements that they may have read about because the internet is unpoliced or whatever else that mean that the doctor has something to bring to the table as well. Some GPs, of course, are not 
as upskilled as they should be, not just on the drug management of the menopause. So for instance, HRT, all the various different kinds, and there are many different kinds available, but also the non-drug aspects, the lifestyle changes, providing really holistic advice and working with a woman to see what works for her to make it really personal. So what I'd like to see is all of us in the room being grown ups together. And for you, Anthony, in R&D, what does the menopause conversation look like in 12 months' time? Well, I'm, I'm kind of hoping it, it, it looks like the conversation around any other thing you would have with your skin or anything else. You know, teenagers have acne. They accept it. They embrace it. You know, they know that some treatments work for me. They don't work for others. You know, if we can get to the point, you know, for the menopausal woman or perimenopausal woman where she's just, this is just life and I'm going to be happy and open to talk to somebody about it. And we can offer products that can help her with specifically what she needs and that given point in the, you know, the chaotic time of the perimenopausal cycle. That would be absolutely wonderful. And with that, I would like to thank Gina, Sarah and Anthony for taking part today and to you for listening. Thank you.